and this is Michael Foley, your host for this segment of the Farm and Garden Show. Today we'll be talking with Blair Phillips and Cheyenne Clark of Wanoche Forest Garden and Healing Ground outside of Willits about forest and watershed management, growing sustenance in forests and forest edges, and the many projects of Wanoche Gardens. Formerly known as Abuela Gardens, Wanoche describes itself as a 40-plus acre demonstration, education, and regeneration center located in the heart of Mendocino County, Pomo Territory of California, supporting communities, families, and individuals' return to regenerative and reciprocal relationships with the ecosystems we live within. Blair and Cheyenne host workshops on topics from women's carpentry to natural building and arts to, the co-wilding, to a co-wilding retreat, but they are also actively managing the surrounding forest and watershed and engaging neighbors on Pine Mountain in management for fire protection and forest resilience. We'll be spending a lot of time on these efforts, but first, some introductions. Blair and Cheyenne, how did you come to this project? How long have you been at it? Hey, Michael. Thanks for having us. Um, This is Blair speaking, and uh, I landed in the Mendocino County after doing an extensive touring of California on a vegetable oil-powered fleet of school buses planting fruit trees throughout the state with an organization that I founded in 1999 called Common Vision. Um, And the organization is still operating today in its fourth generation based out of Oakland, and after touring for quite a bit, uh, I was just ready to start planting trees and tending tending land in, in one place and um, hopped around Mendocino a little bit. Well, synchronicity, circumstance, and surrender met me here at Winosh Forest Gardens. Um, and I've been here for a decade now. Yeah, good. Since 2013, is that right? I believe that's right. Yep. Yeah. Ten years. Yeah. And Cheyenne, how about you? What's your trajectory been? I grew up with a parent in Mendocino County and a parent in Marin County and spent my childhood bouncing between the two. And after living out of state and going to school, I had a long-standing call to come back to Mendocino for family land, and I had heard of Abuela Garden through the grapevine with my own curiosities in natural building and homesteading and forest stewardship, and met Blair in 2021 at a community forest meeting in Leggett, and it became really clear that this project was aligns with my values and visions and a place that I wanted to call home and learn from for, for perhaps future projects on my family's land uh-huh. north of Laytonville. Ah, okay. Good. You know, you, you said something in, um, in your application for the Ecofarm um, scholarship about um, being, being um, committed to restoration, ecological restoration and remembrance culture. Um, I take it that has to do with taking account of indigenous lifeways in um, in these processes. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Um, 
the land that I inherited, my neighbor and dear friend is of the Caddo people out of Laytonville, uh-huh. indigenous tribe, and the waterways that run through my lands he calls Ulinden, which means healing waters, and he's been a, a strong ally for me in in remembering to soften and to listen and um there's so many ways that we're demonstrated still to this day colonizing of nature so there's there's a deep rewiring that i'm curious to explore within myself and uh to interact with those who and learn from those who know how to live in closer reciprocity with knowing ourselves as part of the ecosystem and belonging within it yeah good um yeah um, that's a that's a good start. We're going to come come around to that notion of reciprocity later on in the discussion. But um, so, what are, what are the workshops that you're doing, and how do they fit into this vision? Well, we've we've been offering different workshops, um, all kind of with the theme of water at the center, ultimately, and how we relate to the environment and water. Um, and the the direct pathway with that has to do with our watershed regeneration workshops that, that happen mostly in the winter and the spring. Um, they revolve around fire. They revolve around mushroom propagation. They revolve around reading the landscape and design work for meeting those ends. Um, and then the indirect processes have more to do with reciprocity as far as how we do fire prevention, which, which ultimately is, is just the other side of the coin. You know, traditional uses, when I say traditional, I say how fire's relationship with fire has generally been a prescription of thinning and um, sometimes burning, uh, which is great. Um, but there's, there's a missing element, which is actually the other side of the coin, which is the watershed regeneration part, which just requires understanding approach uh, to the forest and how those two things have a deep relationship. And so we we offer workshops on being able to see that side of it. And then uh, we're also offering different types of building workshops. Like you mentioned, the women's carpentry workshop, and then a whole host of natural building workshops with amazing teachers like Michael G. Smith, who's written multiple books and been teaching for decades, and Athena Steen of the Canelo Project, who has um, also been teaching for decades and who's third-generation clay culture. She grew up in the Pueblos of New Mexico with her grandmother and her mother all um, sharing clay with her. And, um both, I mean, both of those folks are leaders of the movement, and and then this year we're bringing in Viva Hansen, who he has his business is called Mudblood Builds, and mm. he is just kind of a rock star when it comes to rocket stoves and efficient wood burning heat, and mm-hmm. how to do that with clay and thermal mass. And then we have 
that's that's kind of the physical hands-on work and then then we offer other workshops like the rewilding workshop and Qigong workshop uh-huh. uh, and we're developing other programs that revolve around the integration of permaculture with the internal arts and essentially how to connect the internal to the external. And by internal arts, what do you, what do you? Yeah, well, the ones that we've mainly been sharing have to do with yoga, asana, practice, qigong, writing, journaling, um, but it's it's really about anything that helps us develop a deeper sense of inner awareness, anything that helps us still ourselves enough and quiet ourselves enough to really be in touch with our inner workings. And from there, our uh, journey with that and how it relates and what the bridge is between how we relate to the external landscape Yeah, yeah. Yeah, our intention Good. there is really to to weave the internal and external landscapes in this reawakening of a inseparable and interconnected healing journey of being human upon the earth right now and the earth regeneration. So how are those two connected and how do healing or working in the forest invite us to work on our internal world and how does working in our internal world invite us to to work in the watershed and connecting these in a cyclical way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So healing ground in is part of the part of the name of the place and you mean it in two senses at least. Right. Yes. That's right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well good. Um so let's let's get on to the one sense, um, the, the work you're doing there in the forest and the watershed. Uh, Sarah and I had a wonderful tour of your work in the forest, and I wanted to reprise some of the questions asked in the course of that tour. But let's, let's start with your garden, because um, this isn't the sort of garden most of us expect from permaculture design. No spirals or keyhole cul-de-sacs, but just straight rows like most conventional gardens. Can you tell us about the design and why you chose it? Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll start off by saying it, once upon a time in the same space that you saw, there, there was um, many spiral gardens and keyhole gardens. <laughs> And um, I love the design, and although they do tend to create more surface space um, and edge effect, uh, what I was finding was that when it comes to dealing with frost and frost protection, when it comes to dealing with shade protection, and when it comes to rotating animals through my system, um, it was really inefficient for me because... A, there's not a lot of us here on the land. And B, when when you have really fun and squirrely infrastructure for your garden, it tends to not lend itself very easily for attaching um, any kind of protection or fencing to easily have multi-purpose. 
Uh Um, And so there's that aspect to it, but then there's also the aspect that in relationship to all the work we do in the forest, we clean, tidy, and organize the resources that are made through doing fire prevention and watershed regeneration work into what we can use for hugel culture. And for those who aren't familiar with that, that's when you bury different grades of decaying wood and essentially over time create a big sponge and fertility pocket that your garden can benefit from. So as far as digging the holes for those hugel cultures, again, it just came with ease to be able to have straight lines uh-huh. to be laying all the material into and dropping off all the uh, manures and stuff that went in the later layers. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, good. I want to uh, just stop for a moment to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Blair Phillips and Cheyenne Clark of Winoche Forest Garden. And this is KZYX and Z, listener-supported community radio. Good. Well, let's move up your hillside and talk about your work with the forest. You've done a lot of thinning and a lot of burning. What's the rationale for this sort of management? Well, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying in 2017, we had mand- mandatory evacuations, and the fire literally came right up to our property line. And at that point, I really did not have much of a relationship with fire other than, you know, campfires, well lodge, and an oven occasionally. Mm-hmm. And I felt radically disempowered um, and, and fearful uh, because I didn't know how the fire was going to work and what, what to expect. And all I knew was it was coming my way. And mm-hmm. um, so continuing with the pun, it really lit a fire under my buns to <laughs> develop my relationship, which I had already wanted to, to reintroduce fire to the landscape, but I, I felt like I was pretty far off. And so I just started really investigating um, and I, I had done some controlled burning with some of my uh, indigenous friends from the Miwok folks and also some friends in Lake County um, who, who hold a lodge. And um, they had shared beginnings of that relationship with me. And then I was grateful when the Prescribed Burning Association came to fruition and was offering online courses and and then I was able to attend um, a burn and I grew my confidence little by little and uh, pretty much most of the burning we've done and we've burnt 16 broad acres now has been done with me and one of our landmates for the most part and the way we've we've tackled that is just very slowly and approaching with humility. Um, and the first time we really lit our fires, we said, all right, we're going to just do 10 square feet. Hmm. And 10 square feet took five minutes. <laughs> and then we did another 10 square feet. And then soon enough, we were doing 20 and 40 till eventually we were doing 300 foot lines that would span um, 60 feet of elevation, 80 feet of elevation. Uh-huh. 
And so, yeah, giving the context with fire, the other, there's a lot of preparatory work that goes into managing for fire and with fire when, you know, you're working with forests that you've inherited bad logging practices or they've been grazed and overgrazed. And so you have lots of encroaching um, firs and madrones that are just kind of sometimes growing on like foot centers. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's a process of thinning for sure to get there in the beginning. And so we thin and, and then we burn and, that's it's kind of one whole piece, but then there's a whole other context that comes from different permacultural lineages revolving around key line design, um, which for friends who are not familiar with what key line design is, it's when you're citing places in the landscape where water has the most momentum behind it as it's moving up over land and then being able to move that water out board the ridges and then just slightly off contour usually in a one in 400 drop and what that does is it uses the natural momentum of above ground water and moves it out and keeps it high in the elevation and by by doing that we can recharge the aquifers we can I've seen actually spring develop because of doing this work. And if you're in creek line areas, you can make ephemeral creeks run longer. Uh And so if you couple that with another tactic of erosion control and basically the Hugel culture element, but not necessarily for the agricultural practice, but more for, unless you're looking from a really bird's eye view where you're thinking, you know, many generations ahead, creating fertility and moisture pockets in the forest. And so those three things all relate to each other because they, they create resources that need to be tidied and cleaned and organized um, to finish the job. So you're talking about the results of thinning being used in these watershed restoration processes, um, drawing on the key line concept. Is that right? Yep, exactly. I'm drawing on the key line concept, but then, then there's a whole other element that I forgot to mention, and that's, that's how to work animals into the, into the equation and starting to think of what the Forest Service would call a burn unit. You know, so you, you, you essentially divide the forest or your property into what's called burn units, and that's how you, you move forward with the burning. But for us, we look at it as that those are going to double as paddocks, so we call them burn paddocks instead of burn units in reference to the fact that our intention in the long term is to rotate animals through the system. So you... You, then you're burning and you're you're adding all those nutrients and minerals back into the forest and you're also cleaning the forest for uh, fuels, but then you're also cleaning the forest for weevils that eat the acorns. And wow. then you can run the animals through the same paddock later on when it's starting to grow back and they'll keep 
all the the new growth down, but then they're also completing the nutrient availability. So between fire and the animals, you're getting a whole nutrient and fertilization regime to support the health of the forest. And and you know maybe um, some of our listeners don't don't really grasp the relationship between nutrient availability and fire. Can you spell that out some more? Yeah, well, when when we burn, we have a couple byproducts that are really valuable, and one is that we're we're making all that ash. It's it's actually we're not aiming for the ash; we're aiming for black on the the landscape, and that becomes washed into the soil as a nutrient availability. It also especially if you have water available, you can put out some of the fire and make low-grade biochar. And that also acts as a filter for above-ground water as it makes its way towards the creeks. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Cheyenne, have you used fire on your property north of Laytonville? I haven't yet. Uh-huh. A, a neighbor is a avid burner. And he has been working for the past couple of years a bit on my lands and primarily on his. Um, but we have plans to be working in the forest and stacking functions with fire in the coming years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, um, visiting your forest there at Wanosh, um, it, it reminded me of those accounts of the earliest European visitors to the Atlantic coast who described forests so open they, quote, could drive a carriage through them, um, which we know now is the effect of indigenous forest management. Uh, it, it's pretty clear you see this work as a continuation of indigenous practices. Are there differences in your approach as well as similarities? I wish I could speak more than I will to that. <laughs> um, you know, there's just a lot of missing information. Um, but what I will share is that working with fire has an ineffable connection spirit and an ineffable connection to place. And as we start to work with fire and we honor fire as an elder, we really begin to understand what it means to be human and what it means to have a relationship with where we live as a steward. Um, I can't speak to really what the native folks of this land and area have done. In fact, some of the native folks that I have met when I ask them about fire, they say, oh yeah, you know, my grandpa did that or my grandpa's grandpa did that, but I don't really know anything about it. Yeah. And so we've definitely been developing our own relationship um, to the spirit of fire and you know, like we, we mentioned, there's a whole braid of internal arts work that we do. And what we've found is our work with fire has really supported us in our own healing processes and gives us an opportunity to essentially hold the things that we're challenged by in our mindset and give them to the fire to work with. Hmm. And I've, I've gone into doing burns where I've, I'm carrying 
challenges and grief, and I've finished the burn feeling a sense of renewal. And it's very difficult to describe, but I, I, I feel like prayerfully all of your listeners can get a sense of what I'm trying to say, because it really is that ineffable experience that kind of brings a sense of completion or a sense of full circle, especially if you're a person who has been working with water or has been working with mud uh, for building or a gardener or all of those that that's I'm describing myself there. I had, you know, been fascinated by water and water management. I've worked gardens and orchards. I've done lots of natural building and I've built, helped build little ovens and I've, I've tended a fire for a lodge, but I'd never been in that place where fire is literally all around you. And Circling back to what I was saying about being uh, having the mandatory evalu- uh, mandatory evacuations in 2017, now I feel a sense of clarity around my relationship with fire so that I can read the environment more and I can understand, oh, the wind, how the wind is playing a role, what the topography is saying about where the fire is coming from. And I have an understanding of what a backfire is that the department, the CVS could put in a backfire and understand what that means uh-huh. and how it would work and how it'll be effective. So there's just been an enormous amount of learning there. Yeah. And I guess just to finish your question about the relationship to the native way um, the beauty there is that I think that, the, and the similarity is that I believe that all the native folks definitely looked at fire as an elder teacher. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's definitely how we approach it. Yeah. 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 When, when we took that tour shortly before I pooped out, you, you were speaking about all the variables you're keeping in mind and, you know, there are there are those who insist that litter on the forest floor from decaying leaves to rotting logs is essential to forest health. So how does how does burning, how does your style fit into that scheme of management or maybe it's non management? Well, I a hundred percent agree with the folks who say that the forest floor should have uh, a cover. Uh-huh. And that that gets into again kind of to try and make it explicit, I mean, that's what little bit I know from traditional ecological knowledge is that fire is an important system, a part of the management of the forest. And so there is um, this first times when we bring fire back where we really are doing a massive disruption because we are burning off all the, the leaf litter and fuels. But we're also burning off you know, 40 plus years of, of fuel material that traditionally, from a, a traditional ecological knowledge standpoint, was getting burned off every three to seven years. Uh-huh. And so um, I definitely have had major concern because, you know, you, you thin first and you, you pull out all kinds of material and you get that on the ground. 
and then you burn and and that that not only so now you have some new gaps of light coming through the canopy into the forest you you burn all the material you then the the, the land is black mm. and so you can kind of see where i'm going is, yeah. is it, it it's the opposite where you're you're now you're bringing light down to the forest floor that's now black and you're heating it all up and so i definitely believe that when you're reintroducing fire into the into the management practice, it's going to be worse before it gets better, from my perspective, uh-huh. um, which does have that relationship and that belief that the duff is incredibly important because it harbors the mycelium. And when you have thick dust, even a low-intensity fire is not going to affect the mycelium. But when you have your first fires, because you have so much fuel to get rid of, you're kind of having to, to shoulder that. Uh-huh. And so, what, yeah. What, what have you seen in terms of results, in terms of um, things coming back? You know, they say that 90% of native species um, are uh, fire adapted um, because fire was so pervasive um, before we tried to control it. Um, but, but what's your experience been of things coming back? Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty minimal other than just seeing things looking healthier generally. And, and like you had mentioned, um, being able to walk through the forest where it was, you couldn't even see through it. It was so overgrown. Um, but my favorite thing that I, I know is directly related is before we were working with fire, all of our acorns always had weevils. In them. Oh. You could not harvest acorns without weevils. And now where we have fire as a mosaic, I can follow the mosaic and the acorns are weevil free. Uh-huh. Hmm. So I have a lot of gratitude for fire on that and um, I just ultimately trust the indigenous way. I trust the traditional ecological knowledge as the elders that I, I'm inspired to listen to because what I've noticed in my life is that there's very few folks who carry the knowledge that we really need to be listening to when it comes to how to relate to our place in the planet. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I'm just going to interrupt for a moment uh, um, here at the half hour to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Blair Phillips and Cheyenne Clark of Winoche Forest Garden. And this is KZYX and Z, listener-supported community radio streaming live on the web. So um, you've worked a lot with your neighbors in facilitating or carrying out yourself thinning and prescribed burns. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yes. Uh, essentially, there's been grant monies coming to surface around doing uh, fire prevention work and, and also um, forest health work. And... So when I started seeing those monies come available, um, I started just reaching out to my neighbors and saying, hey, guys, you know, 
we're all in the same boat. <laughs> and it was it was a really positive response very quickly. So at this point, I've organized uh, the seven immediate neighbors around me. Um, and when I say organized, it's definitely loose in that there's a vision for just creating a safe environment um, when it comes to fire. And and I and I I said I would like to essentially start moving forward in ways that we can get help here because we're so limited on help. And most of my neighbors are um, significantly older than me. I have uh, two that are in their 70s, and I had a third in her 70s, and she actually moved because of the fires, and she just felt too scared. Um, so we have a new neighbor there and was quick to connect with him over that because I was already in the process of doing the work and I was able to just show him what I was up to and he was inspired. And so now there's seven neighbors uh, totaling just over 400 acres of property. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm continually looking for more folks to include because the more, the more properties that can be a uh, piece of it, the better chances you have of, of really receiving the grant. And so the first grant I wrote was a $3.8 million grant for fire prevention work that was coming from the, the stance that we've been talking about. And so the grant, first and foremost, uh, I reached out to uh, the friend that Diane had spoken about, about his work, which he he runs a tree trimming work service, and we were organizing with the local uh, bands of the Sherwood Band and the Coyote Valley Band of Indians um, and the Caso to be the first option for the work pool oh. um, of the, the work that was going to be accomplished under the grant. And then the idea was that it, it had a, a major shaded fuel break that surrounded the west and south side of Pine Mountain. Uh -huh. And then the idea was we would do additional thinning around all infrastructure, community infrastructure, and then... Uh, site places in the environment where we could be burying the extra material to create fertility and moisture pockets based on what I was sharing earlier about key line design and fugal culture. Uh -huh. And then doing follow-up with burns and animals. Um, we, had, we had found a contract to run um, 140 goats through the, the burn paddocks after there was some... Um, regrowth and it made it through the first few rounds there was four rounds and the fourth round was the state in sacramento so it made it through the first three rounds locally um city and county and then i guess the third i'm not sure what the third one was and then it went to sacramento and it got bounced back and they asked us to reapply and then this year the mendocino you know, uh, Fire Safe Council actually adopted a big piece of what we had done. And we had been working with them and had reached out to 
folks over there. Um, and so now the fire break that we had proposed, it looks like it's at least doubled, if not tripled um, in size. And that, that's actually happening. So <sighs> I think that um, it was supportive and a massive learning curve and powerful in the organizational process and the whole business end of essentially, which was the beginning of a regenerative economy movement that um, the Northern Mendocino Ecological Recovery Alliance that Cheyenne, where Cheyenne and I originally met, actually was the first um, meeting of that. And she's been instrumental in a lot of the organization of that organization is now trying to push. I'd pass it over to Cheyenne to talk about that if you're yeah, interested. Yeah, good. I was I was about to do that actually. So good, Cheyenne. Sure. So the Northern Mendocino Ecosystem Recovery Alliance we formed. It's been a uh, a slow but steady formation. And at the beginning of 2022, we became a 501c3 nonprofit and. Our focus has really been on this <clears throat> collective regeneration that is ecological and economic, and how does our relationship to the environment create potential for our economies to also be regenerative? Of course, when we look at the more recent history of these lands and the ways that we have had extractive relationships with them, we are now reaping those wounds of logging and overgrazing and cannabis, Cannabis, this continual kind of colonized mindset of extracting and taking. And we see that in the threats of fire and of drought. And I'm sure we could name more, but, you know, we see that also now in our local and regional economies. And we see the the downturn of our economic well-being in tandem with our ecological well-being. So the ERA has, has motives and inspiration in building this community conversation and this reminder of a healthy community being connected to a healthy forest and where does that meet our healthy economy. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity here for things to kind of turn a new leaf or for there to be a bit of a, a reframe on how we relate to these ecosystems we live in and uh, the potential for there to be many, many jobs based in regeneration and restoration for local people in local ecosystems. Yeah. Wow. That's great. Um, it, it sounds like great work and that it dovetails nicely with the projects at Wanosh. Um, I want to go back to that notion of reciprocity. Uh, I think both of you have spoken about reciprocity. You've also used the term stewardship and regeneration. Can you talk more about what reciprocity means in, in your particular context? Yes. Well, 
I'd like to give a shout out to my friends that I've been working with um, over the last, ooh, I guess it's been almost four years now, the Forest Reciprocity Group. Um, and we have been, that was, that was really where the term started to be used regularly for me um, in that we were alluding to what I was just talking about, we were really looking at how can we make it for a generative economy or at least a way for people to feel a clear incentive to focus on forest health. And so we were developing um, and have been and continue to be developing different designs for using small diameter poles from the forest. And so in, in this format, reciprocity is about the relationship we have with the forest. How, if we are giving our life force energy to the forest, there, there can be a reciprocity, a giving back um, from the forest in the form of these small diameter poles. And I mean, that also dovetails with what permaculturalists often say is the problem is the solution. So we're looking at these overgrown forests and we're saying, well, how, what can we do? How can we, how can we fix this? And then suddenly realizing that the thing that everyone's scared of, which is encroaching pole, dug fir, small diameter poles that are encroaching on legacy oak forests and creating massive fuel loads is actually a major gift. Uh-huh. And so what we need to do is be able to understand how to approach it from this perspective, approach it from the watershed regeneration and fire prevention perspective, and essentially be gifted back from the forest along the way. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful vision. I first encountered it at a gathering in Willits before the pandemic, I guess, a presentation by some of your colleagues with the Forest Reciprocity Group. Um, And I've been taken with it ever since. But I take it you mean more than that, more than just the recovery of some of the forest products. Uh, You've talked, I think, about, you know, um, growing things in the forest and on the edge of the forest that can sustain us. Is that right? Yes. Um, and this kind of, it's funny how all the different things imply the other parts. And, you know, Cheyenne was talking about how the regenerative work in the forest also comes in tandem with the economy and how those things are related, that they're, they're basically inseparable. And essentially the same, the same thing goes with how we how we live in the forest in terms of what some people refer to as the veld that's the old word term that is kind of the place that's in between the wild and our most intensively used places in permaculture you know it might be considered zones 1 through 5 the 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 places where we are and um, another way of looking at it is where we marry the wild uh-huh. where our relationship is in devotion and what reciprocity comes out of that relationship. So 
Yes, we're looking at the edges and the integrated effects as we approach the forest and think, okay, this is this is a, a special spot that potentially we can uh, cultivate more angelica or cohoshes or other endangered perennial herbs. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a whole piece of adaptive strategy. And what I mean by that is that essentially our forests are in decline, as most people know. We are under threat from Japanese tree beetle. We have threats of sudden oak death. We have different leaf funguses throughout the forest. And we're seeing massive decline. And perfectly, our work with fire is supportive in, in that process being reversed but also we've got to have kind of a plan b and and ask ourselves well what does it look like what what kind of species can we get established that won't be under threat of the japanese tree beetle that won't be under threat of the the sudden oak death or any of the other host of problems that we have and can actually create um a better life for the humans that tend that land through food or building materials or fibers. So reciprocity and adaptive strategy all come together at that point. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Um, I just, you know, what you were saying just now reminded me of this whole process of driving ordinary people out of the forests and in Europe and England in particular as private property became a resource for people with a lot of money um, and forestry, especially the Prussian forestry school that was imported here at the Yale, the Yale School of Forestry, our first school of forestry, emphasized just um, just the timber you can extract, whereas Ordinary people were um, were taking out sources of protein, small animals of all kinds, and mushrooms and herbs, and just a whole whole variety of things um, from from these live forests. And um, how much of that was destroyed in the pursuit of monocultural timber um, kinds of kinds of ways of, of approaching the forest. Um, so restoring that kind of relationship to the forest seems seems really important for our future. Um, Agreed. Yeah. I would call that craft culture or the revival of craft culture. Ah. We've seen it through all types of European countries. We see it in the Edo period of Japan. Yeah. People who have a relationship. And then actually we can see some good examples from the Edo period where there was main primary stewards of, of large tracts of forest who related to the government and kind of could re- regulate and that that was respected. Yeah. Yeah. Often regulated at the village level. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to take a break for just a moment. Reminding listeners, we're talking with Blair Phillips and Cheyenne Clark of Wanosh Forest Garden outside of Willits. And this is KCYX and Z, listener-supported community radio. Um, so I wanted to um, 
ask a little bit about uh, this is the, the last question we talked about when when Sarah and I visited um, your experience at the Echo Farm conference. Just to remind listeners, uh, back in January, annual conference where organic farmers of all stripes come together to learn and network. So how do you see your permaculture-inspired work possibly contributing to better farming, gardening, and ranching practices? What sorts of intersections might we hope for? We could have a whole show on that, Michael. Um, <laughs> I know we could. <laughs> we, could have, we could have a series of shows on that one. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm going to have to answer questions with questions to some degree and, and just ask, you know, well, I'll, I'll note that in the many years of visiting Eco Farm and that being kind of a massive introduction to some of the elders that I do look up to and respect and seeing uh, a bit of a decline of the space that they were holding being, I don't want to say replaced, but um, just more voice from industrial organic farming. Um, I just, I would say my prayer there is that there is room for a dialogue and that it's not just a bunch of monologues coming together uh, and ask what ways can we scale up what we're learning from homestead mentality, closed loop system mentality, and how it relates to the wild environments that are on the periphery of the human environment. Um, because ultimately, that, that, that really just starts to make explicit that there is this forgetting that we are that wild and that we are that human nature, uh, that our true nature is being nature. And big industrial farming tends to keep that, um, even when it's organic, often tends to keep that separation there and is still heavily reliant on um, re reactionary management over diversified systems and the health of diversified systems. And I, I think that there are some some folks that we can definitely point to who are are at the forefront of that leadership that that needs to really have a louder voice. Um, but yeah, I guess the question is is how can we scale up the idea of a closed loop system? It's kind of a paradox, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, because if if there's people who only role in the food system is consuming from a store, there's an immediate disconnect. And so there's a question about the overall culture of humanity and the collective movement that I do believe is inevitably going to be addressed one way or another. Yeah. On. Cheyenne, did you have some reflections to add to this? Sure. I would know one thing that was coming up in my experience at Eco Farm and in reflection is this ongoing 
conversation with localization and where that meets uh-huh. our industrial food system. And I'm incredibly grateful to be able to go to the store and purchase organic produce and for that to be a, a way that we are supported at this time. And I also am aware that when I spend money to purchase produce from a large producer, that money leaves our local economy. And I don't know where it goes, but the more that we're able to, I'm able to use my dollar to purchase food that comes from local farmers, then it it's feeding m- many layers of our well-being. So I... I, in similar sentiments, I think to what to what Blair's saying, I felt really inspired, and in that there were many insights and incredible connections made at Eco Farm, and I was reminded of the importance and value for each of us to take steps towards growing food or having relationships with the forest or with local farmers that begin to add some layers of personal relation uh, to the foods that we're eating and to our local economies and farmers that um, perhaps at some time we will have a much larger dependence on. Um, And this reminder of this statistic that I'll probably misquote, but (laughs) that during World War II, you know, people grew maybe like 40% of their produce in their backyards and, now we're down to probably less than 1%. Yeah. Um, and how does, how do these questions of scaling up and these questions of scaling down, of all the way down of what can one, one person grow? Um, and how do we create systems also for when we have excess, when we grow so many tomatoes or so many winter squashes that we can't eat them all? And we want to be able to offer that to our local community and neighbors um, because there really is so much food that becomes available when we reintroduce that relationship into our households. And yeah, those are some of my questions and thoughts. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to attend the Eco Farm Conference and yeah, it definitely was perking uh, these questions of, of how to be in closer relationship to my food and the food that we grow and the farmers that I'm living close to. Yeah, great. Um, we're going to be pursuing the questions you're asking, I think, throughout um, you know the, this, this program. We're plumb out of time, but can you... Um, give some contact information where people can find out more, um, both about Wanosh and about the, the Northern Mendocino Alliance. Yes. Wanosh.org, that's W-A-N-O-S-H.org, is the best place to find our workshop lineup. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram, Wanosh Forest Gardens, where the most 
uh, live and up to date on there. But our website is fully equipped to to receive registrations or inquiries about workshops and ways to come to the land. And the Northern Mendocino Ecosystem Recovery Alliance, you can find us at nm-era.org or nm.era on Instagram. And we are having a, a community work day in Forest Health event on April 29th at Tan Oak Park in Leggett. And this will be a really comprehensive day with some workshops and some working. Uh, we'll be doing a bit of fuels reduction, some round pull peeling and some small diameter round pull peeling for furniture building. We'll be feeding and loading a biochar kiln and having general discussion around all of these topics. There'll be lunch. That event starts at 10 a.m. on April 29th. And the Winosh Workshop. Uh, I got to cut you off there. We're just exactly out of time. <laughs> but Perfect. thank you so much. Um, and that, that, that legged event sounds really interesting. Thank you so much for being on with us. Um, thank you, Michael. Yeah. Um, see, talk to you Appreciate later. You. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Until then. Bye-bye. Yeah, You've been listening to the Farm and Garden Show. Farm and Garden Show plays every first, third, and fourth Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. And this has been the Farm and Garden Show with your host, Michael Foley. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.